This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 190, brought to you in association with Smart and enlistedboard.com, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Jodan Ledford, CEO of Smart USA, to talk about pensions in the US, a topic we have never covered before. As we've heard in different contexts, banking insurance, for example, the United States is something of a paradox. Well, actually, we could have crossed out the banking insurance. We could just say the United States is a paradox, but let's gloss over that. We need to zoom in a bit closer to the fintech world, insofar as that, uh, as we all know, that it's the leading global payer because of the dollar and its empire and, and all this kind of stuff once the USSR disappeared, although China's making a comeback. However, when we come to sort of things like banking, on the one hand, it's pretty backwards when we come to checks and the likes crowdfunding never took off. And as we heard in LFP 179 with Thimble, the nightmare of trying to create a US insurance company because you've got to go around all the states and get you know 99 licenses, or perhaps there aren't 99 states. There will be at this rate by the time they'll secede from, from each other. So overall, we have this situation where US is the, the global financial leader, but in other ways, it's paradoxically further behind. Anyway, so let's dive into the US and pensions. In many ways, they're ahead. Perhaps there are some things that they can learn from the rest of the world, and perhaps there are some things we can learn from them. So, plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Jodan. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I guess good afternoon for you. Yeah, we've had this paradox going for a while, which is uh, what, what is the what is the etiquette of uh, when people are in different um, uh, time zones? I don't think the human brain was designed for that. It's a bit like sort of time paradoxes in science fiction where you go back and kill your grandfather. I mean, you know, you're not supposed to be able to do that kind of thing. You're not supposed to be able to talk to people on different continents. But actually, uh, that, that leads into an interesting thing in terms of mixed working in that I went to my first couple of drinks parties last week in London, a company of my wife's director for, and then some city lawyers handing out some very nice drinks. And actually, just in passing, for any people who ha- haven't actually gone back to this kind of thing yet, I found that one of the things I'd lost over the last 18 months of COVID and lockdown at home was my software module, which keeps track of how much I'm drinking when you go to a drinks party where there are waiters constantly filling up your glass. And as I talked too much in the first place, let alone when I've been locked at home, there was a downside to these drinks in that I had to wake up with sort of two, two hangovers the, the next day. So there were, there were challenges about going back to work beyond the obvious ones. Actually, one challenge I heard, which relates to the, the podcast, the previous podcast of this I'd conducted in person, we're now back over Zoom, which is that uh, I was talking to some people in one company. And they were saying, oh, well, people come back, you know, a couple of days a week and this kind of thing. And so I was asking how meetings work, where you've got, say, four people around the table and then you've got two laptop screens showing, showing other people like that. And they said, oh, no, it's worse than that, because some of the partners won't even leave their offices. So you've got some people who are appearing over Zoom despite being in the building. I don't know how much of that, of that you're having or indeed where you are in the US, Jordan, right now. Yeah, um, it's a challenge, actually. We um, So Smart USA was founded during the pandemic. So just imagine that, you know, kind of putting together an entire business, hiring people, not really being in person at all for the first you know, six months. We acquired an office space in Nashville, Tennessee. And then it kind of dawned on me through this that you know, there might be a, a complete rethink on how people actually go to work um, because the, the pre-pandemic model of kind of open desk space, uh, conference rooms, that kind of presupposed everybody's gonna be in the office. But in the new world, 
if you go to hybrid working models, then by definition, if no, if one person is not in the office, then pretty much nobody is, meaning you might need to have a bunch of those little telephone booths so that people can go in and do their Zoom calls and their Google Meet calls uh, with the ability to not have an echo that, that kills everybody on the call, right? So it, it'll be interesting to see how workspaces evolve because I do think we're going to be in this mode of partially in the office, out of the office because people have gotten accustomed to the fact that they can be productive at home, balance family life, whatnot. Indeed. Well, we shall all see. The one thing about the future is that it seems to happen of its own accord without any input from us. Although I guess we can try and nudge it in the direction of better rather than worse. So um, just on a trivial point, because one of the things about uh, this period of remote London Fintech podcasting is I've learned quite a bit about pronunciation of names around the world. So in particular, I remember that, uh, which I didn't know before, which is that Turkish is completely phonetic. You can pronounce it as you read it, which is very useful, of course, to know <laughs> some of the great value added that I give to my listeners. But uh, in terms of American names, I have to say, Juden, that you're the first Juden I missed. And of course, I probably committed the sort of sin that you get very bored of by now of in some email calling you Jordan or something as a sort of a, a slip because I hadn't looked it up. So where does the name Juden come from? I mean, did your parents kind of make a typo when they when they registered you, or, or, or is there a long lineage going back to some country I've never heard of or something? Or was it no. made up in America, in, in, made, in, made in America? Wasn't it a Bruce Springsteen album or something? Yeah, so it's a good question. When I was a kid, I, I kind of felt like it was a curse because, you know, being one letter off from Jordan, everybody would call me Jordan. But as I've aged, I've realized that that actually was a bit of a benefit because it made me uh, outgoing because I had to stand up for myself. So no, it was like, no, my name's Jordan. It's not Jordan, although I do kind of respond to both. No, so the, the, the name comes from the fact that I was born in the late 70s and ultrasound technology was not as good as it was uh, as it is today. And so I guess I was on my side or something and they didn't they didn't have a sense of who what I was going to be. And so they planned for me to be a little girl the entire time. So they had a little girl's name picked out, Lucille. And then the doctor said, hey, it's a boy. And my dad, kind of in the heat of the moment, freaked out, didn't really know what to name me. And so he defaulted to the fact that my grandfathers were Joseph and Daniel. And so he said, well, what if I just piece them together and then we do Joden? Now, my dad's from Kentucky, so he says Joe Dan. But I would correct everybody in the world that I don't I go by Joden and not Joe Dan. But that, that's it. That's where it came from. A little bit of confusion on, in the heat of the moment. And uh, my dad not wanting to upset either one of the grandparents or the grandfathers and kind of piecing it together. Oh, that's really cool. So my guess was right. In, or if it was a Bruce Springsteen album in terms of Made in America. Yeah. It's good to see that things are, are new over there. And talking about things being new over there, I mean, you guys used to belong to a, a country um, that used to be a country a, a little while ago and you went independent. Um, uh, we don't actually have time to ask how that's going. As, as far as I can see from afar, it didn't go brilliantly well and, and then it went extremely well for about 150 years and, and now maybe not. But anyway, glossing over that and just sticking with <laughs> the financial services, I probably sort of slighted you in my sort of killing list imperialist way by sort of saying that America is, is mixed as a whole in FS, in some ways way ahead and in some ways sort of uh, rather behind. So maybe you just take that as a context and say, well, actually, that's you know roughly right or, or, or completely wrong. And then go from there to a little bit about the history of pensions in the US. I mean, I do remember, you know, yonks ago, the 401ks or whatever, like from the 80s, long before such a thing uh, existed in, in the UK, you know, transferable pension schemes, mumble, mumble, mumble. But at first, you can start, if you want, addressing my slur or just say, well, actually, it's roughly right. And, and then tell us a little bit about history of pensions in the US, where it's been in the past, so we understand the context of where it is today. Yeah, obviously, there's a lot to cover there. So I'll, I'll be brief to the best I can in the most logical narrative I can. So Way back uh, before I became a CEO and a technology, a financial technology firm, I was trained as an actuary, as a pension actuary. And so really the retirement 
journey in the U.S. kind of starts with the defined benefit plan. And at its core, the defined benefit plan is a workforce management tool. So, you know, it's kind of created with the railroads. You basically had people working on the railroads in the U.S. until they died. American Express was a railroad company, you know, effectively a railroad company. And so they had the bright idea, okay, if we offer a pension, you know, guaranteed income payment, we can get people stop working on the railroad at age 65. And that will, you know, kind of decrease our mortality statistics on, you know, workplace death. And so, so they implemented that. Uh, well, back in, you know, kind of in the early 1900s, the life expectancy was, you know, roughly 70 at most. So you, you, you were talking about people working for 30 years on the railroad in exchange for a five-year payment. And, and that was a good workforce management tool. So kind of fast forward, we got towards the post-war era in the 50s and 60s. And you started seeing the defined benefit become a more pervasive retirement tool for large corporations, especially those that had unionized labor, like the auto manufacturers. And so in that period of time, when you would go through union negotiations, the CEOs, uh, we can talk about shareholder uh, value or shareholder capitalism versus stakeholder capitalism, but uh, the CEOs would basically say, um, paraphrasing to some extent, why would I pay for pay increases when I can effectively give on pension increases and kind of win this negotiation? So from a CEO's perspective, you know, a five to 10 year time frame at most, they think, well, if I can keep, you know, kind of fixed costs low, I can put a bunch of stuff in the pensions and then, you know, I'll be gone by the time those come home to roost. And so what, what happened over that period of time, kind of fast forwarding along way on the DB side is that you had liabilities that are being granted to people. You've had assets that are supposed to be managed against them. But some of the ways that we kind of accounted for pensions and some of the ways we kind of measured those liabilities, there was a disconnect between actually the way you invest in, in assets to meet those liabilities. And lo and behold, we had about a you know three different events, um, you know, kind of starting with the dot-com bubble where you know we had massive gaps between assets and liabilities. The corporations decided that you know this is too much of a risk for us. We have this fixed liability that we have to pay. We don't win all the assets for it, so it's a contingent call on our on our cash flows. So you started seeing a rampant closure of, of DB plans, kind of accelerate late '90s, early 2000s, and, and through today. You know, balance that out with also the true value of a DB liability is kind of staying in in one place for a very long time because of the way that the benefits are granted. And it really was becoming somewhat of an antiquated retirement tool because of the fact that people are becoming more mobile on the workforce side. So that gives you a sense of like the history of the DB side and kind of how it, it, it waned and kind of the mixture of assets and liabilities. And you had the you know kind of wave come out with liability-driven investing that you know really now has kind of become pervasive both in the UK and the US, but on runoff books of, of liabilities. So if you if you look at that, that kind of gives you a story of DB. Along the way, you know, RISA was a piece of legislation that, that passed in the US in 1974. That was a big, very, very big, far-reaching legislation that covered DB, but also then uh, kind of covered a bunch of different areas, including a little supplemental savings vehicle called the 401k. And the idea was that the 401k was, was used as a closure of a loophole in a supplemental savings vehicle. So sometime in the early 80s, and I believe it was Johnson & Johnson, but I could be wrong, somebody came along and said, hey, this might actually work as a pretty good supplemental savings vehicle for retirement. And so the 401k then morphed into being viewed as potentially a retirement plan, but it wasn't built from scratch to be a retirement plan. And so it is a defined contribution arrangement where you know if you're so fortunate your employer provides it for you, they might provide a match uh, to your contributions. And the idea is, is that you know you could, you could save on a pre-tax basis 9 or 10%, that grows a big balance as you get to retirement. And then at retirement, instead of the company saying, we're going to give you this income for life, which is what the DB did, typically at a 50 to 60% kind of replacement of your income. Basically at that point in time in DC, you know, it's like, hey, good job. Thanks for working for us. 
good luck. <laughs> yeah, let us know how you get on with it, right? And so that's kind of the evolution. And today, the DC plan is the most you know pervasive. I think 65% of assets in the US are in DC. That's going to accelerate. And so some of the dynamics that are at play at this point in time are exactly what I kind of laid out, which is you know, not only helping people understand how to produce income in retirement, but then also not everybody offers a 401k plan in the US. And so we have, you know, we kind of have a massive coverage gap that also needs to be, needs to be covered. There's roughly 5 million businesses in the US and there's about 600,000 or, uh, or so 401k plans. So, you know, there's 85 to 90% of the businesses out there don't offer one. But that kind of gives you the history of where we are today and some of the challenges, looking to get more access to people and then help people understand how to create income in retirement that used to be provided to them, you know, with these DV benefits. Wow, that's impressive. So if you ever sort of give up the day job, you can become a history lecturer because that's, <laughs> I think you've definitely got the gold star for uh, 2021 on the London FinTech podcast. I and mean, I generally, you know, if we go into some new area, ask a little bit about the history. And I normally have to sort of nudge guests beforehand to go back sort of more than five years, let alone a, a century. So, I mean, I understood myself over here how the things waned. I mean, I've forgotten when it was, but at some point there was some accounting standard change, which is that companies had to mark to market their pensions and liabilities. And, you know, they did that and the board went, fuck, yeah. you know, which led to the, the whole thing changing. So it was literally an accounting change. I don't know the background to what led to that accounting change, but it's presumably the, the process you've, you've spoken about. And it was very interesting to hear about the origins in the, the early, about 100, 100 years ago of pensions and then how they were used. And when you were talking about CEOs preferring to give to uh, unions or whatever in negotiations pensions because they're sort of, you know, on the never-never uh, as opposed to cash, which is today. Yeah, and I think um, I just, I don't mean to interrupt, but I think the, uh, I went, one, one thing I meant to mention on that is, is kind of when the, when the chickens came home to roost. So I mentioned that, you know, when the, when the DV benefit came out 65, you know, and then the, the average life expectancy being less than 70 or 70, when these pension benefits came home to roost, like General Motors, for example, you know, you had people because of the way they gave on some of these benefits on the pension side, you had some people that would work for General Motors for 20 years and they would get an unreduced benefit, which is just actuarial speak for basically they were given a full benefit to retire early and they would retire at 55 and they would live to 85. So they worked for 50%, they, they were in retirement for 50% longer than they actually worked. And so the cost of the benefit became so you know, so high that it really made, that really made no sense. And it's part of one, you know, one of the things that led to, to the kind of reshuffling at, at General Motors. And so you just start seeing how unintended consequences come out because of how things evolve with respect to lifespans or whatnot. And so, yeah, it is, you know, you kind of have to go back to the beginning because from the beginning, it, it, you know, in, in its purest sense, it, it, it's a really good benefit. People should really want retirement benefits. Yeah. But the dynamics of the, the math and the, and the economics gets flipped when you're, when you're paying for, you know, 30 years of retirement versus five. Yes, and I've forgotten, I think it was GM, wasn't it, that was described as a pension fund with a small right. car company attached once they yeah. done the accounting. But I mean, the, the postponement into the future and the sort of make hay while the sun shines approach of your temporary chief executive reminded me of the um, plenty of people trying to reanalyze liberal democracy and these kind of things to see whether there's a fatal flaw that sort of led to where we are at the moment. And the answer is a bit like any sort of code. There's probably lots of bugs in the code. But one of them is that there's a chap called Hans Hermann Hopper, the Austrian, who's written a book about, I forgot what it's called, but anyway, 
basically sort of pointing out that sort of democracy has got the wrong incentives for the leaders, in that if you're a monarchy, and of course lots of monarchs were rubbish, but if you're a monarch, you believe you own the country, your children would inherit the country. So basically, on average, you know, you had a long-term perspective on what you wanted the country to, do, to be. It's a bit like you've got a defined contribution scheme, you want to look after your pension fund on 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So monarchs have that time scale. Whereas, uh, as we see over here, prime ministers come and go, and at my age I've seen quite a few come and go, and they are just like landlords who literally want to maximise the performance over the next few years, and therefore they don't do the appropriate things. Anyway, so govern that's, that's governance. So we are where we are, and the one thing which is implicit in that, which younger listeners uh, will not have lived through, which is that um, going back to when people had DB, defined benefit schemes, the company took the risk. So, you know, I knew people who retired from Clown Waltz in the 90s. I remember playing golf with some of them in the early 2000s. And they were on 80% of final salary, which was the salary you had at the age of 60, which was bloody good, you know. And good for them. They lived fantastically, went around the world first class and holidays and all that kind of stuff. Now, these days, you join the workforce now, you won't get any DB scheme in the UK unless you're bloody lucky. And you've got a pot of money. And OK, you've got a pot of money. That sounds nice. But then, of course, all the risk is on you. And then when you come to the other end of the spectrum, uh, like me and my buddies, you've got the whole problem about how on earth do you invest it, especially with, you know, the crazy outlook for inflation, etc, etc. So there's been a massive risk transfer. So where we, we are where we are. So in terms of the structure of the US pensions industry at the moment, I assume that, like in most countries, uh, most of the market is owned by a very few players. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, one of the interesting differences, so the UK, you, you kind of mentioned this in, in your opening, maybe foreshadowing, but what's old is new again. We're, we're, you know, we're antiquated in some ways, we're ahead of the schedule in some ways. When it comes to the pensions market, you know, we can look at the UK and see the future and then see what we're about to go down the path on. And where I'm going with this is UK kind of led the way with LDI, making LDI a bit more pervasive. LDI standing for, for those people. Uh, sorry, yeah, liability driven investing. So when we talked about the DB side, the assets and liability mismatch. If you look at a defined benefit pension plan, you owe a bunch of income payments to your uh, participants you know, throughout their retirement. So you can model this as an actuary to get to um, a value of what, that, of what that liability is worth today. So it looks like a stream of payments in the future to participants, value it using bond yields to get to a present value as if it was like a bond. So you can actually buy bonds that match uh, similar payout profiles as what you owe your participants, and you can immunize basically your assets go the same way as your liabilities, depending on what the interest rate markets do. In the extreme case, if you retire at the age of, I don't know what it is, if you're joining the workforce today, it'll probably be 99, given the way the sort of state keeps upping the limit. You retire at the age of 99, you've got a pot of money, you expect to live to 150 by then, and you can invest in a, an annuity where clever actuaries like you and insurance companies sort of wave lots of magic wands in the background and they guarantee you a, a cash flow in the future. So we're, we're talking about this, you know, generating future cash flows, but not being mismatched. So if you retire at the age of 99 and expect to live to 150, then leaving it in cash probably ain't going to be very good because inflation will be a thousand percent by then. Right. Yeah. You were asking about the, the dominant players in the US market. So liability driven investing started, you know, effectively became very popular in the UK, came over to the US. There was another piece of legislation back in the, I guess, mid 20 teens, <laughs> which was automatic enrollment, where uh, the UK said that every every company had to offer a uh, DC scheme to their participants. And we're, we're probably potentially seeing that on the horizon here in the US. And so a lot of question comes down to Pike, which is, you know, if, how does, you know, how does the US pension market grow? if it's not compelled to. Meaning if you're not forcing everybody to have a scheme, how does it grow? And where I'm going with that is um, we've, we've basically built 
a $30 trillion uh, retirements market off of tax incentives historically throughout time. And so big pieces of legislation can have a lot of impact on the way that the market goes and, and grows. And we have a few seminal pieces of legislation. We had ERISA uh, in 74, uh, I'll bore people through the 80s and I'll just go straight to, uh, we had the Pension Protection Act of, of 2006. And so what that created was basically two things. It created the lively driven investing market in the US because it, it said basically, if you have a deficit, if your assets are way lower than your liabilities, you have to fund that deficit through a seven year period. So then that kind of brought you, that brought religion and Jesus to the DB market. People started investing up and they wanted to have their assets and liabilities performed the same way. But the second thing it did was it created a qualified default investment alternative in the DC market, which says, okay, if you bring people into your DC scheme, if they don't opt in and actually manage their own money, here's a couple strategies that you can put them in that we won't come after you for doing it. So if the market goes terribly and you and you default in the strategy, we won't hold you liable for it effectively. And so one of those strategies was the target date fund. So the target date fund is a one size fits all asset allocation journey where basically the idea is, is that as you are younger, you want to be allocated more to risk assets so you can uh, offset all the inflation aspects that you talked about, about generating income in the future. And as you get closer to retirement, you need to de-risk into more safe assets vis-a-vis uh, -vis bonds in this case. It kind of under, The underlying investment science goes back to... Just stopping on that one, because one of the huge problems over here is that uh, George Osborne liberalised what you could do with your pension fund when you were starting to take it out and do it. And then, of course, you know, with the massive state socialism, we've seen regulators um, gradually like... Um, uh, in Gulliver's travel, like the Lilliputians tie you down in a million ways. So I can't move my money out of my DB scheme into a DC scheme without some advice from a, an advisor who's going to charge me a fortune. And the FCA have, have told him what to think. Now, given that I've got a little bit of experience in fixing interest and risk, I know that what they're telling me is a complete load of cock. And this is rather <laughs> uh, uh, frustrating to put it mildly. So the scenario you spoke about, and I actually I did ha happen to see in some newspaper the, the same day, you know, advice on pensions. And I thought, well, actually, that isn't really the case at all. You know, the big risk now, if you're retiring, is in hyperinflation, given how around the world major governments have been printing money like there's no tomorrow from 2008 in particular onwards. It just doesn't stop. So the idea, I mean, of course, it's, you know, legally correct and all this kind of stuff and nobody goes to jail for buying IBM to torture a cliche but the idea that anybody who's approaching retirement should be trying to get more bonds and cash strikes me as the worst possible mismatch in the current circumstances I mean commodity prices are through the roof etc etc so either wearing my historic fixed interest fund managers hat or risk hat I would say that's a a crazy thing to do. So the question there, like many things, is in the States, how easy is it to take control of your money and just do what you bloody want to do with your money? Now, a very small number of people who are as financially sophisticated as, as you or I, so the average person might want to do the average thing. But as you can imagine, um, given my background, I'm, I've got a hell of a lot of buddies who are in FS, and they can certainly think for themselves. And, you know, they've got more experience than anybody at the FCA who sets the rules. So, you know, people are, are very popular to have sips here, where you just invest it as you like. And, you know, fine if you end up living in a gutter you know drinking sort of uh, out of date cans of lager well that's your luck out really uh, what about in the in the states so you know how much of this is kind of self-managed like you know that you can manage your own fund how much of it is in uh, the dbs and so you're just getting this benefit um, and then how much has got to be sort of advised via advisors who give you the politically correct you know thing which may actually not make much sense if you think about it in in very changing circumstances that we live in 
Okay, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, so... You can answer yes or no if you like and make it simpler and hope the listeners weren't really paying attention to my infinite long question. Yeah, well, be, being mindful that I still haven't answered your first question, which I'll do quickly. <laughs> you can tell you're an actor, you see. You really keep track of all the details. Yeah, you don't leave, yeah. leave all the, the ends loose. That's good. The question you asked about being dominant players. So, yeah, so the targeted fund, and I'll talk about the underlying investment science, which you talked about, and then I'll talk about the role of advisor and advice. So the PPA of 06 uh, created this targeted fund as a suitable investment to default people into. Um, it created the, it took the target date fund market from roughly 150 billion in assets to over two trillion in a 12 year period. And what's the total size of U.S. pensions, roughly speaking? So the DB market is roughly three three and a half trillion. The DC market, qualified DC market, so 401k is roughly about eight trillion. And then you have this individual retirement account market, which is you know roughly about nine nine trillion. And, and if you bring all the governments in, there's more than that. So like those are the main three we'd want to talk about. So effectively you can see the impact of legislation. You know, you could you see large changes in it. And so as it stands right now, 70 cents of every dollar that goes into a DC plan in the US goes into a target date fund. And 70% of those 70 cents are kind of dominated by three uh, three large players, Fidelity Vanguard and T Rowe T Rowe Price. And so Pivoting to your next comment, though, which I think is, you know, this is a really interesting kind of topic, and I'm going to do my best to be completely objective and all and all all these things. I mean, the target date fund, the underlying investment science goes back to a, a paper written by Harry Markowitz in, you know, like in the 40s or 50s, based on mean variance optimization. Modern portfolio theory, which I actually right. read back in the day in the 80s, and the paper said literally at the beginning, this isn't how the world works. But for the sake of doing a sort of simple calculation, <laughs> for the maths. let yeah, us yeah. say so and so, and then yeah. you know. I got fed up in the fund management world of hearing people go, oh, modern portfolio theory. No, it's ancient. And if you read what they actually said, they didn't mean it that literally because they knew the world wasn't like that. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No. So it's interesting because, you know, but by and large, I think the targeted fund being one size fits all, it generally makes a ton of sense for the age of 25 to let's call it 45 or 50. And then when you get to 50 and you have to start transitioning into, um, into retirement focus or planning for retirement, really the dynamic of the math problem becomes about generating income because as you mentioned greatest one of the greatest risk transfers in history is going from a db market where me company owe you money until you die to a dc market where me company might be able to invest alongside you but when you get to retirement off you go and good luck um and so from that perspective the actual mean variance optimization the modern portfolio theory might be running a disservice to some of these folks as they approach retirement this one size fits all solution which is why you're seeing things like hybrid targeted funds come out where you're starting to get more managed accounts and advice to help people generate income or focus on income. But if you actually read the, you know, the regs, effectively changing a lens into an income lens is a challenge because it's written basically about bonds are less risky than equities. But as you mentioned, low interest rates, risk of hyperinflation, bonds could be a lot more risky. The riskiest asset class. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so I think you're starting to see a bit of evolution here. The other issue is, is that, you know, you and I and probably your listeners, we, we all have thoughts on, you know, uh, asset classes in the future. But the majority of people who are in these plans do not. And so we need to be able to create outcomes for them that the underlying investments feed into. And it's not about what the actual investments are. Meaning, you know, when you get to retirement, if a targeted fund, you might be down to 40% equities and 60% fixed income. But if you actually look at the way that you would want to generate income in the future, and you mentioned, you know, insurance companies and generating income and whatnot. I mean, insurance companies don't go out of business for a reason. It's a spread game. They make more money on their assets and they have to pay out an income. But that asset allocation is going to look a lot different than maybe what the one size fits all targeted fund sizes. And so, 
you know, we've had this market in the U.S., I guess, so putting a pin in that, um, you know, I think when you get to retirement, people might be surprised that you might need a lot more equities than you think because you're lo- you're alive for a longer investment horizon than originally anticipated with retirement. And you need to generate enough return to off- offset inflation, especially if you get into like a hyperinflationary period. And so it's going to create, it's going to require solutions. And it's not, there's no one size fits all because everybody's, you know, kind of circumstances different than everybody else's. And so I think, you know, with the rise of technology, with the rise of personalization in every single form of fashion on your, you know, on your phone and on your computer, we're going to expect to need to have tailored device that can be delivered from a mass perspective. And that's going to have to rely on, to, on technology. And so, you know, I think that's where the future is, is going to your question on advice and, and advisors. They play a very large role in the U.S. at this point in time. They play a very large role here because they're mandated. I can't do anything without going through them. So, yes, I mean, the, the one parameter which in practice gets flexed here is that people retire later and later and later because especially going back to this massive quantity easing so-called money, modern monetary theory which is exactly what they had at the end of the Roman Empire i.e. debased the coinage till it's virtually uh, meaningless and, and other things like that it means that um, people actually can't retire so actually I knew somebody in their 80s who's still working a little bit to top it up so who knows what's going to happen to assets but I'm just f- focusing a little bit on the opportunities in the US and uh, why my friends at Smart are over there and why you've moved from a sort of uh, a big code job to the sort of the more startup end to create new ideas and new ventures and, and things far faster. What are the opportunities you're seeing? Yeah, so we, we kind of went down and I talked about two pieces of legislation, but the, the third one that, that to highlight is came out at the end of 2019. It's called the Secure Act and it uh, effectively did two things. First of all, going to Discord and, and different uh, politics. Uh, Historically in the U.S., retirement legislation has been something that there's been a lot of bipartisan support for, mainly because the elected officials need to show that they've actually done something to their constituents, and this seems to be a pretty benign topic. So we've had some really good retirement legislation, but the theme has definitely shifted with respect to the key focus of not only what came out in 2019, but what might come out in the future in the U.S. And the two themes are, one, we kind of mentioned this beginning, there's a heck of a lot of people, 40 million Americans don't have access to a retirement plan that need to have access to retirement plans. We need to solve for that. And then secondly, and you kind of alluded to this uh, in some of your comments, there's a huge push to keep people in plan through retirement. So create quasi DB-like solutions for income in plan, mainly because the economics in plan are a bit more favorable to the participant from 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 that perspective. Uh, you might be able to get an institutional solution at less than 100 basis points, whereas if you go to the advised market, you're going to get uh, you know more retail pricing. Not to say there isn't a role for advisors. We think there's obviously a great role for advisors, but that's the themes. And so if you look at those themes, the market's not set up to capture either one of those. I mean, we have 500 uh, or 600,000 401k plans. We need to add millions more. And then also, you know, the 401k was never designed to be a retirement plan. So now we're trying to retrofit the 401k to produce retirement income solutions. Both of those places are avoid waiting to be filled with a technology solution. And that's what SMART is doing in the US. Um, in the UK, SMART was founded off the back of automatic enrollment legislation, onboarded over 70,000 employers in a four-year period, close to a million participants at this point in time. That type of volume of, of, of plan onboarding and, and or employer onboarding is unheard of in the US. Uh, as it stands right now, SMART's pension master trust in the UK would be roughly the, the second or third largest U.S. record keeper by plan volume comparison. It did it four years, not 40. And so what we're focused on in the U.S. is providing retirement technology that allows for that level of volume of 
of uh, solutions in a, in a very master trust-like uh, analogous solution of a pooled employer plan and enabling a lot of the current market participants in the U.S. to be able to capture that volume that's coming with legislation. So, you know, we, we'll be, you know, focused on being a powered by solution. There's a lot of different elements that we're, that we're bringing to market. Retirement income, we have a uh, retirement income module that helps people understand how to take balances of money turn them into outcome-oriented solutions, early retirement income versus later life retirement income, emergency savings tools, all the things that make it easier to conceptualize what the actual outcome that you're focusing on. That's Those are the tools we're providing to the market, and we can do that to large institutional players. We can also do it for financial advisors. Things that are going to allow them to help advise folks that are going on this journey that need need to stay in plan through retirement. Yes, I mean we've been speaking at sort of thirty thousand feet level of long swathes of time and huge changes in philosophy and and structure um, and all that. But the reality is, let's make us two gods and we will decide what's going to happen with the rest of the world's pensions forevermore over the next week over a few zooms. Whatever we decide. There's kind of a, you know, there's an exponentially greater amount of administration and record keeping that needs to happen in the background, which is the kind of thing when mom's at 30,000 feet one entirely forgets. But actually, in terms of whatever we decided, we're going to do this or that or the other, that is the real bit where uh, the rubber hits the road. And that is the real bit where I can clearly see that the right technology systems enable different providers to be able to implement their new solutions rapidly rather than slowly, which leads very nicely into, uh, before wrapping up the show, I'd like to thank the listeners out there. I hope all your pensions are sorted. And uh, my small tip is um, think for yourself, although having said that, um, uh, it's a bit uh, tricky if you're getting nearer to the, the retirement given what the scenarios are in terms of there's a huge potential range of outcomes in the next 10 or 20 years anyway one day at a time I'd also like, like to thank my brand partners of the podcast who I welcome on the show today Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan find out more at www.smart.co enlistedboard.com your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. And I just published an article on that one last week that uh, the cognoscenti amongst you might like to check out in terms of how the English company invented the two-tier board, how Europe imported it via the Dutch East India Company, how England then forgot that it invented it, and how now you'll hear this thing about the two-tier board as some foreign invention from the continent. So those of you interested in history 400 years ago might be interested. And also, actually, I did get a, a, a like from Nick at Forward Partners because because what the uh, VOC, the Dutch East India Company, did 400 years ago is exactly, exactly the same as you can read what leading VCs are doing today in terms of listing and getting permanent capital. Anyway, that's a bit of a digression if any of you need something to read on a Friday afternoon. So, Joden, we mentioned a lot about the sort of the big picture context, and I think that's sort of really sort of uh, helpful about these sort of long-term currents in the waves and the oceans and the, and the atmospheres affecting everything. You've also brought it down to the technology level where whatever system you've got, it needs a hell of a lot of administration. Doing computers better really is a quite a useful thing in those circumstances. And it's kind of unglamorous market where one can get the kind of leadership that uh, Smart has got. What would you like by way of flag waving and, and shout out to say for the dessert course in terms of what can empower Smart worldwide, but uh, in particular Smart in the US on its mission to help whatever happens, but uh, all of us people who end up with pensions? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, this is a, a, you know meant to be talking all about what we're doing which is great but i think one thing that will probably be of interest to your to your listeners is 
just the the god the sheer gaudiness of some of the numbers that could be unfolding with the current legislation. So, you know, if you think about 40 million Americans needing access, if you got a majority of those giving access, that could introduce an additional five and a half trillion dollars, according to PwC, uh, in the next ten years into the market. There's another four trillion to five trillion that's sitting in pre-retirement assets in the DC world. That if they're forced to stay in plan, presents a brand new kind of retirement income challenge that new market solutions need to be created for. And so this saturation of the three largest players in the market, there's a real chance for disruption in the future. Disruption can not only be in in technology perspective, but it can also be an investment manager perspective. And so I think you're going to see a lot of change and and money in motion is where money and money entering the system is where you can see a lot of uh, opportunities for those to come in and help uh, create the solutions of tomorrow. And so for us, smart you know, the, those objectives are pretty good. I mean, obviously, we're, we've got the, the demonstrated capability of being able to deliver volume of employers onto pensions platforms to be able to help people save for retirement, which is the ultimate goal. And then also having the retirement income capabilities to help participants understand how to create income, kind of almost a do-it-yourself DB type solution, but then also allow other market participants who have that brand, you've named a few of them and talk about our partners, and being able to give them a seat at the table to say, this is how you create income and, and you know this is the trusted name. Smart's there to be able to enable all the trusted names to be able to deliver upon that. And I think, you know, if we do a you know a revisit of this podcast in 10 years time, you know, my guess is I'll get some things right, I'll get some things wrong, but ultimately you're going to see a huge shift on how people ingest advice and how people actually ingest their their, uh, their pensions income. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how it all evolves in the next 10 years. Totally. And um, I like the fact that you started with 100 years of history because it's only by looking at the, the longer periods of history that you realise that Heraclitus was right. Everything is always in motion. The Buddha was right. Well, everything is always in motion, always changing. And some of these changes take decades to rise and to evolve and you know the outcome of the massive money printing we've seen in the last 13 years how that's going to play out and pensions like everything else in finance will keep changing I mean it occurs to me I was just wondering what happened before there were pension plans well of course before pension plans you had these pension plans called your children and your grandchildren yeah going back to the problems we're having with civilization sort of collapsing if you're on a pessimistic day Spengler made the point a hundred years ago that civilizations are finished when having children becomes uh, a choice, uh, as he put it. When the Roman Empire is on the up, everybody wants kids and, oh, wow, they want your kids and you want grandkids to take part of it. And, of course, the entirety of history, your pension was your children and your grandchildren. Now, we've seen this financialization of the world over the past century in particular, but, you know, just talking about the... Um, the UK post-World War II, the state took over as the sort of the parent, well, we'll look after you from cradle to grave. And, uh, you know, that must be one of the factors that's led uh, around Europe to the population growth being 1.4 per woman rather than 2.1. And then it needs to be even stay steady. So the Europeans are, are literally um, disappearing. But now that um, the state is getting uh, much more social credit score like which is, oh, you can't have your pen- state pension unless you get sort of 15 updates on your vaccination before lunchtime kind of stuff. <laughs> maybe, maybe that... Uh, I think you're totally right on 10-year view, but I don't think I'm going to make a 50-year view. But if we could replay this one in 50 years, or my grandchildren have taken over the podcast by then, and maybe in 50 years, the conversation of my grandkid when they're doing the podcast is that, uh, oh, yes, and so over the last 50 years, grandchildren replaced the uh, the DB and the DC. But uh, that's some time off, and hopefully a time scale I didn't have to worry about. Um, and in the meantime, there's a lot of time between now and then. And unless you've got sort of a dozen grandchildren who you're nice to uh, and who will be nice to you in the future you need pensions the world of pensions is changing and as everywhere else in fs technology has got a great place to 
part to play in enabling that. So I'm, of course, very pleased to have Smart as my long-term sponsor on the show. They've done brilliantly well. I'm not just saying that because they're, they're a sponsor. They have. And I wish you every success in leveraging um, their technology um, in the States for the benefit, um, not just of the providers, but more importantly, for all the citizens who can benefit and have better pension schemes and better access to pension schemes and better transparency and all of the things that they need to ensure their financial future. So thank you for that, Jordan, and I wish you every success in the future. Thanks. That was a that was a, a whirlwind tour from a Bad Max dystopian future to the future is bright when it comes to technology solutions to help people spend through retirement. I'll make that the title <laughs> of the episode if I just use yeah. too many characters for WordPress. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks, Jordan. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you are in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance, watching the firelight dance. We could walk in the mountains before dawn, watching a happy moon ride, watching a happy moon ride. Come away from the city With the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city With the faces so gray With the pain of the Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye City goodbye. Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.